Hi, it's Brian. In this episode, we welcome Elaine Aldaffer. Now a seasoned professional in casting, Elaine's path has been anything but conventional. After studying theater at NYU, Elaine initially made the safe choice and worked as a paralegal. But that was not her destiny, and she had the courage to take a leap of faith and leave her well-paying job to return to her passion. She found her true calling in the world of casting, and Elaine is thrilled to share some wisdom about the magic of perseverance and the role of community in an actor's life. Before you listen, you've got to grab our backstage pass because it is packed with Elaine's top tips, insider advice, and additional resources that will give you a competitive edge. You can grab the backstage pass by going to podcastbackstagepass.com. I would guess, Elaine, you're a believer in astrology. Is that true or not true? I, I would say, yeah, I, I do. I, I dabble. Yeah. I think it's kind of interesting when you think about where you were born, the location, where the stars and planets align, like that dictates at least a, a, a certain, let's just say roadmap that you're given. However, you can change that roadmap as right. you go along life right. and, and it's up right. to you to change it. Do you, do you, do you agree with that? I, I do. I think that we write the script. I definitely think that. And I think there are certain, like you said, road markers. I think, you know, there are certain things that are, I don't know if I want to say preordained, but I think there is a script that we write before we come into this life. And then I think that can change as our journey changes and our, as we learn lessons. And I think it's like, I, I do think it's a karmic thing that we bring that script in from maybe previous lives or whatever. I'm not sure. I mean, it's all kind of like exciting to think about and speculate. You know, I would say you manifest the people in your circle. When you say we manifest the, the people in our circle, do you think we can manifest the, pe- the things we want out of life? I do. I do. Yeah, I think, you know, being positive and you can change your trajectory by just, you know, putting your focus on the things that you want. But I think it's also that can be limiting too. So it's kind of like I always say, you know, this or something better. But I do. I do think that by, you know, thinking positively and by doing what you love too and committing to what you love and having the courage to commit to what you love to do. I think it's, you're, you're sending an, a, a signal out to the universe that I'm a serious player and this is what I want in my life. It all makes a lot of sense to me. To me, you're like the cousin or maybe even sister or, or some relative of Marcy Phillips. There's something about the two of you. Oh, that I- I've heard that. I've heard that we're kindred spirits. I've met her and she's so awesome. And then, you know, and I've read her book too, which I think everybody should read about being present, about being a present actor. Um, and I think she's, yeah, I think she's amazing. But yeah, I definitely think that we're probably very much in the same spiritual wavelength as far as how we feel about actors and how we feel like actors are spiritual beings and storytellers and and actors are, are creatures that go back, you know, their legacy goes back many millennia. And it's something that you're called to do. And not everybody has the courage to, call, to answer that calling because it's, you know, it's not an easy life. I don't like the word competitive, but there's a, there are a lot of challenges. Let's just say there's a lot of challenges, but there's also a lot of rewards. And I think that's what pulls people in too. But I think the people that have truly been called to do the work, and I always say it's not something you choose, it chooses you. The people that are called to do that work and, and persevere, you know, they find their way. They find their way. They find their path. They, the path gets easier as you go, if that makes sense. I'm a perfect example of it. I was bitten by the bug, you know, when I was five years old and I want, knew I wanted to be part of this community. I remember my kindergarten teacher asking me what I wanted to be 
when I grew up and I said an actress, except I already am one. I told her. <laughs> already am one. But, you know, I, I never quite knew where I was going to fit in this community. I just knew I wanted to be part of the community. And, you know, it was hard because I went to NYU and I was a theater major and I had a lot of well-meaning people, relatives and friends telling me, oh, you got to do something else because it's so hard to be an actor. It's so competitive. There's just so few jobs. There's so much. But it's like this scarcity mentality, you know, and I think that can be as big a challenge as any. But, um, you know, I'm glad I, I took, I, I decided, nope, I'm going to go to NYU. I'm going to get, I'm going to be a theater major. I'm going to, I'm going to study. I'm going to, I'm going to find out what this is, what this calling is all about. Then that path led me to where I am now. This is my dream job. I mean, I remember like the first time I worked on a casting project. I went, oh, this is where I belong. How did it get from NYU to the, that casting project? Oh, man, there was like a lot of twists and turns in that journey. <laughs> well, there was something that happened that made you say, okay, I'm going to try this thing called casting assistant or whatever. Yeah. What, what led you to that? It was just kind of happened. It was a casting director who I used to go in for a lot. And he just said one day, he says, hey, I need help. And we started before the friendship. And he says, hey, I need help on a, a project. It was a commercial for copper tone tanning. And how many how many and years yeah. out of school were you, would you say, out of NYU? Oh, gosh. Well, because there was like a, a decade in the okay. middle. Okay. So it was like a decade out of school. And I had gone back to it because I, I, was, I was a paralegal. For oh, and that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, I was a, I was a paralegal. I worked in a huge law firm that was like a burnout law firm. Nobody lasted there very long. I actually worked Donald Trump's first bankruptcy. <laughs> that was one of the first projects I worked on. Did you consider going to law school or no? The law firm that I worked at talked to me about about that, about sponsoring me to go to law school. And then I saw like all of the people that were working there who were coming out of school, you know, and they were all like, oh. <laughs> oh, I don't want to do that. You know, one day I just said, okay, I just miss being part of that community. I got to get back into it and sort of like, again, and that took a lot of courage because I was making a lot of money and I had a really good, it was a really good job, benefits and a future. And I was like, this is just not making me happy. So I, you know, got out and started like, tried the actor thing. And then, you know, and then I met Mike Grosko and, and you know, was his casting assistant. And then I met James Galeri right after that too. So I met James Galeri, who was, you know, I took classes with him okay, as an, as an acting student. And then he asked me to, um, to help him out on this project we were working on for, it was like, like a youth writing festival. It was like teenage writers. And I worked with him on that. And then when he went to Playwrights Horizons, he asked me to go with him to be his assistant. And that's kind of like it all, how it all started. And that was 1996. So that's, yeah. And you first started going to University of Michigan, is that correct? I went to the Michigan School of the Arts. Michigan School of the Arts. You switch, is Michigan School of the Arts a college level or high school? It's a, yes, it's college, it's a conservatory program. Okay, so and, what, what happened that you said to yourself, okay, I'm going to switch over from Michigan to NYU? Okay, so here's what happened. <laughs> so, so when I got out of school, I, it was, you know, I, w I had an agent and I was going out. And I auditioned for a magician to be a magician's assistant in a show. On a, on a cruise ship or no? Oh, it was it was it was a lot of things. Okay, All right. it was a tour. It was a big tour, and it was it was cruise ships. It was it was Europe. It was like all it was just working with this magician, and I got that job because I actually had experience 
when in my hometown, I, I was an assistant to a magician, uh, to Kevin James, who was, who's actually a really famous uh, magician now. He was on um, America's Got Talent. He was like up there, way up there. Oh. Uh, but I, so I had experience working with him. So I got the job. And then I married the magician. <laughs> oh my gosh. Were you oh, cut in half by any chance? Oh, three part, three pieces. Shout oh out! Oh my gosh! Can. You have to teach the. Uh, three out of can't. Oh no! You like married, married the the yeah. Oh, yeah, I got wow. married. I married him. Yeah, we we got married, and we opened for Eddie Fisher. I mean, it was it was crazy. We did the Catskill circuits. I mean, we we were all over the place, and it was a lot of fun. It was really a lot of fun, but it, all good things come to an end, <laughs> including the marriage. But but that was like that was that was my sort of detour. And then I said, okay, I got to I gotta make some money. So that's when I went to paralegal school and became a paralegal. And that's, it's incredible. Uh, no, no, because the story, you know, the one thing I wanted to bring up today to you was because, you know, you know this better than I do. I don't. But I, I was listening to this podcast. You know, I, I try to listen to podcasts before I see you just to, so, you know, that they were talking about artists and how the most incredible artists are the ones that don't try to offer you what they think you want to see. Oh, I mean, yeah. You say in the acting profession, it's the same thing? Oh, I think that's true. I think that's like sometimes the biggest mistake. And I understand why people make it because it's 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 hard to trust yourself. But yeah, I mean, you come in to a room and you're trying to be what people want you to be or what you think somebody wants you to be. And it just kind of flattens out your performance. It doesn't, it never, never quite works. And I can always tell when somebody is like trying really hard to give the director or the writer what they want or what they think they want. And you know, the thing is, it's like sometimes they don't know what they want. Sometimes they're waiting for somebody to come in and show them something exciting and new and different. And yeah, so I think that's that's really true. It's like, but it's hard to be organically yourself and it's hard to trust that come in, be coming in and, and uh, sharing your own point of view you know, I always say that. I would say, you know, actors need to come in and pre- and not pretend, but they need to come in like you're a consultant, like you're part of the creative process and you're a creative collaborator. And you need to come in and show, this is what I, I am an expert on this. I'm an expert on this play. I'm an expert on this character or, or whatever the story is. I'm an expert and here's my, I'm sharing with you my expertise. And, you know, and if Somebody wants a second opinion, <laughs> they can get a second opinion from the next guy who comes in the room. But that's, you just like, you have to have that kind of courage of to you know, for your choices and your convictions when you walk in a room. And I love those people who come in. You could tell right away, the minute they walk in the door, I got this, I know what this is. And here, here we go, it's opening night, boom. Hey, it's Brian. I'm dropping in on an important announcement. What you need to know is you have more control over your career than you think. The thing standing between you and the career you want is your connections. And that's where one-on-one next level comes in. If you are not a member yet, you can apply to join at oneononenextlevel.com. Press pause and do that now. If you are already a member and you are ready to get back on track, we want to invite you to book a strategy session with us led by myself personally. We will help you prioritize which classes make the most sense given your career goals. You can find these under the resource hub in your account portal. We can't wait to hear your success story. Let's just say a painter or a musician, in a musician's case, he can like write a song that's kind of like what other people are writing, but it's much different if you write a song just coming from within that when yeah. you're not trying to 
to mirror. Do, do, you, do you sense that the room also when someone tries to like act like somebody else? Yeah, yeah. Because then, you know, then it feels can kind of contrived and derivative and you want, you know, you want people to come in with like exactly with their own, you know, with their own pizzazz, bringing their own pizzazz in the room. And, but it takes a long time to trust that. It t- takes a long time for, for actors to come in and trust that what they know better. They know better than anybody. But boy, it's exciting when you see that happen. I actually was just doing Winter's Tale auditions and there's an actor who I love and I would bring her in and you could always tell that she would always sort of, I could tell she wasn't trusting herself. She was right out of school. She would always sort of try to like give us a general idea of what the, of what we were looking for instead of just coming in and just going, you know, balls to the wall, you know, just like, I'm just going to like, I'm just going to like, you know, attack this, you know, like a Wolverine in heat. And I'm just going to attack this. You know, it's taken her a couple of years and she just did it. She came in and she was so freaking good. I mean, I was like, I was just like, hallelujah. I was so excited. Of course, she got the part. Yay! When you get that feeling of excitement, hallelujah, is that something just like, it just comes right oh, through man, your- Oh, it's man, ru- it's the rush. You know, yeah. I, I always say that. I would say, you know that rush you get, actors, when you get the part? I get that every time I give the part I, or somebody that I love who really deserves it and I know will be spectacular in the role. I get that rush every time that happens. Yeah, it's so cool. That's the best part of my job. That rush is addictive. <laughs> I love making those calls and, and letting people know that they got it. And the best part is when there's an actor who doesn't have an agent and, mm-hmm. and then I can call them directly. I'm always really cheeky. I always say things like, hey, I got good, I've got good news and bad news. You know, right. like, the bad news is I'm going to have to spend some money on a dress for your opening night and I really can't afford it. <laughs> but, you know, so that's bad. And the good news is you got the part. Yeah, I was trying to come up with something like fun like that. You're such a mama bear, so. There was another actor I remember came in um, and she'd come in for a play that we were casting and I love her and she doesn't, didn't have an agent at the time. And I had brought her in, I had brought her in for so many things and she finally, you know, finally got the the lead in a play at Playwrights Horizons. And I called her and I said, hey, and he said, you want to come in and just kind of talk about, you know, your next career steps and what how I can be helpful to you? And she was like, oh, yeah, okay, okay. So she came in and she's sitting on the couch across from me. And I said, you know, the thing is, is I bring in somebody like you, and this happens to me quite often, I'll bring in an actor over and over and over. And they, you know, they come really close and they don't quite get it. And it's always so disappointing for me. And I said, and you know, that we've had that experience together a couple of times. And, but you know, what's so awesome. Today's a new day. And I like handed her the offer letter. <laughs> and um, she was like stunned. She was stunned. That's incredible. Yeah, and I was like, this is a game changer, girl. It's a game changer. And it was. You know, that's the other thing, Elaine. Isn't it incredible to witness someone gets their first break like that, for instance? And I met her here. Oh, I, all right. Yeah, well, another one-on-one success story. Yes. <laughs> so regardless, have, have you noticed, you know, because we started this conversation talking about astrology, or but, but you know, there's something larger than life. And it's almost like there's this invisible circle, right? So you get that first opportunity and you go in that circle it's not a coincidence, but then more starts to come, right? No, yeah, it's it multiplies. The possibilities multiply. But, you know, everybody's on a different timeline. And so you might be somebody who pays their dues. I got, just got yelled at for saying pays their dues. I don't get why that's a bad thing. Oh, oh because it's like, uh, I don't know. It's like 
What do you mean paying my dues? I've worked. I've worked really hard. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Preciousness is what we're talking about. But what were we talking about? <laughs> you know, we were talking about like when you, now. gets that opportunity to get in that circle. Yeah. And I think that sometimes that's confidence. Sometimes it's like somebody going, okay, I know how to do this now. I think it's like the feeling of like, oh, okay, I got that one. I got that one. Oh, and I was talking about that for some people, it takes longer. Yeah. Right. It takes longer. And you know what? I've seen people come out of, out of, you know, programs, either BFA or, or grad programs, and they hit the ground running. They'll book right away and they'll continue to book and continue to book and do really well. And then it seems like at the five-year point, everything stops. I've seen that a lot. I don't know what that's about. But then you get people who like, who will really just understand it's disappointing at first, but they just like, they're patient and they just keep working hard. And, and, and I always say, um, your definition of success should be your commitment to the craft. And they just become very committed to their craft and that's how they get through it. That's how they get through all the disappointments. And all of a sudden, boom, they're working all the time. Your career is a marathon, you know, it's not a race. And, you know, sometimes I see people who've put the work in for five years and haven't really, you know, been able to make a living at it, suddenly surpass the person who is like suddenly not booking anymore. It's really interesting. But that's why it's so important not to, you know, base success on what's in your bank account and, and really on your commitment to the work and to the craft and to the, and to the community, to community. I'm so curious to hear why, Mark, you think that. It's a broader, Elaine, I mean, for instance, haven't you noticed with your own life, I noticed with mine, when, let's just say, one or two, let's just say, unfortunate things happen to me, it's unbelievable how like, they all start then coming in. It, it seems that way, one unfortunate thing after another. But then, when that something small and good, like a fortunate thing happens, it's amazing how then, all of a sudden, it's almost like you're opening up a certain valve. So what I was, what I was commenting about what you were talking before is, I think, there are some amazingly talented people out there, okay? Now, I want to hear what you have to say about this. So, incredibly talented people. And maybe they had the misfortune of some parents that didn't exactly provide an environment of confidence. But, you know, I'm going to be personal. I have a five-year-old, and my main commitment to him is to give him confidence. Because I didn't, I didn't get it when I was a kid. And, and that really messed me up. But I feel that if you can give someone confidence, then even now, obviously you've got to put in the work. So, so no matter what, that has to happen. But with confidence, don't you think that can really catapult someone in, in times of like, let's just say challenge versus someone who doesn't have that confidence? Yeah, I absolutely think that's true. And, you know, Mark, we come from the same generation. So we were like in, not ever encouraged to express or to show our confidence because I was talk like, that way to your mother. You're stuck up, you know? So that was like never encouraged in us. So we, we kind of like, oh, we have to be humble, you yeah. know? Yeah. Be, yeah. But I think, I think even more than confidence, it's, it's the courage. Yes. Have confidence. Is related? Confidence? Yeah, completely. The courage to like, to be confident. It's, it does take courage to be confident in your choices and what you do and, and just trusting yourself. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the more you trust yourself and the more you find that it works, the when you're organic and, and bring your true self into the room, that the more you do that and the more that people respond to that in a positive way helps you to build the confidence. I think that's very true. 
You have been, and Brian, I don't want to talk too much, but I don't want you to start to join in. But I would say you've been, I don't want to say a savior, but there are certain teachers that Brian and I consider have a degree of salvation for what the the platform that Next Level One-on-One has. Because as you know, there was a time where, you know, people were jumping on the bandwagon and and using that horrible term that they use, pay to play. Do you know what I mean? Like to to, to me, pay to play is a very derogatory term. ugly thing. One-on-one Next Level was started from the principle of like, we really wanted to obsess about what you could not get in in college or conservatory. And that is some prominent feedback from someone involved in, in, in the choosing of who's going to be getting the roles with, with the producer or the whoever, the powers that be, the director. But using material that's prevalent and it's coming from their office and then getting feedback from that person is is beyond educational. So, you know, everybody was like, it's a horrible thing. They're paying to play, blah, blah, blah. You have always been through this whole thing, someone who, number one, teaching is a gift and you have it and it exudes. And number two, you never even flinched when this whole thing happened. There were, there were many people that stopped teaching because I don't want to be part of anything that resembles a pay to play kind of. They didn't realize that by doing that, you're having the actor have to take a step back and, and quote, not, not offer what's something that is valuable that you you offer. Yeah. Well, I think it's I think that is an interesting thing because money it's a it's an exchange of energy. And I remember when I was, you know, an actor and I would take classes. You know, I would pay a fee to work with a professional, to work with somebody that I knew I was going to learn a lot from. I made the choice to walk in and I'm going to learn everything I can from that person. And I used to like just drive everybody crazy with questions because I was like so curious about things. And I want I wanted to learn and I wanted to, I mean, when I was right out of school, so I wanted to, um, you know, to bust that, that learning curve. You know, I wanted to bypass that learning curve. And I've learned now that actually the learning curve is kind of a cool thing. You can ride it for a long time. Uh, but I, w- I remember just being like, I'm going to get my money's worth out of this. And I think that's, that that's the responsibility sometimes of the the participant, you know, the apprentice, you know, the apprentice. And what is that line? When the apprentice is ready, the master will appear. Oh, I've never heard that before. That's good. Yeah. And I was like, I wanted to be that apprentice and I wanted those masters to appear. I was not shy about staying after class and like asking questions, you know, of Paul Fouquet or (laughs) the people that I would take classes from at that time. I think you get out of it what you put into it. So if you're putting your fee, your you know your monetary fee, and then you're putting your energy into it, you're going to reap the benefits. You're going to come out way ahead. That's so true because what we've been doing, not only for our special programs, but in general, when somebody joins, is we give them mindset classes. You know, for a special program for Atlanta trip, any of the you know like multi-week programs. I'll be like, why are you investing money and time and showing up? That attitude, it's like, is it is it like not a self-sabotage, but is it a defense mechanism where if you don't put your best foot forward, then- Then you have an excuse. That's right. Or you're trying to like, this wasn't done right, or the reader. Well, or- you know, okay, so here's the thing. In my class, I, I the first thing I say is this is a creative gym. This is a place for you to come and work out every week. And I will give you the, I will give you the, you know, the barbells and I will give you the materials that you need to strengthen those muscles, those acting muscles. And uh, I mean, but it's like how many people like buy memberships at the gym and like never go and then wonder why their muscles are flabby. (laughs) Right, right. For sure. (laughs) You got to put in the work. And I remember- You got to put in the work. Yeah. 
you, I think a year ago or a year or two ago, you would teach like creativity seminars and like. Yeah, yeah, we did that during COVID. And, you know, I was thinking we should do that again. We could do one in person now. So maybe we can we do that in person. I'm so curious about like how, like where you get that. Cause not, you know, I would say besides Marcy, it's you, you are probably yeah. two, our only cast and director instructors who kind of have that ability to teach like creativity and confidence and yeah. authenticity. Like, where do you get that from? I don't know. Maybe it's in my DNA because my my great great grandmother, the Reverend Fanny Aldaffer, oh, oh, oh. uh, was she was like one of the first uh, female evangelical uh, ministers in wow. America. Your um, grandmother, my great grandmother. My grandmother's name was Fanny too. Go ahead. Oh really? Oh wow. Uh, must have been a popular name. But she she was like very charismatic. And she was a faith healer and people would come to her and, you know, she was, she was incredibly loving and uh, she had a mission home where she would take in homeless people and she would feed them and clothe them and, and give them shelter. She believed in, in, in giving back, but she also believed, she believed some wacky thing, let me tell you. <laughs> she really did. But boy, she had the courage of her convictions kind of the theme of this this podcast. But I think I kind of take after her a lot. And then my paternal grandmother was very, very in, much involved in with the March of Dimes and, and Catholic Women's Charities. And like every year she was winning awards. You know, she was one of the first Meals on Wheels people. Wow. She was one of the first Meals on Wheels people. And she would start like prayer chains that would go all around the world. I mean, that would start in Jackson, little Jackson, Michigan, and go all the way around the world like a couple of times, these prayer, prayer chains. So I think I got it from them. I know a lot of people tell me I'm very much like my grandmother. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's just like, you know, that's my calling. I talk to actors about their calling. This is mine. My children and my babies are my actors. And I feel like a huge responsibility uh, make sure that they feel seen and they feel respected. And I, you know, I like being me a mentor to all of them and, and being there for them so that they can navigate through the, the crazy, you know, rough waters of, of making the choice to be an actor because it can be really tricky. So I guess, I don't know. It's just like, I just feel like, again, I feel like it's my calling. You can definitely tell and you know like how much you care you want to make sure they're taken care of i do i i am curious how you got to your position as head of casting at playwrights horizons did you make a conscious choice that theater casting was your calling yeah yeah it's it's funny you were talking uh, mark you were talking about how like i guess they always say when that rains it pours like opportunities suddenly um, opportunities start coming to you and i and just when i decided i wanted to be a casting director all of a sudden boom you know, James Galeri asked me to be assistant, but I also got an offer from CBS to work for them in casting. So it was like all of a sudden I had to make choices. Okay, is it going to be theater or is it going to be television? That was basically what I had to make that decision at that point. But, you know, theater's my love and theater's my church. It only took me like five seconds to make the decision that I'm going to, to work at Playwrights Horizons. Then Playwrights Horizons, something happened where James then left and then you became- Yeah, James left and, and I took over. And how long, how many years were you with James before that happened? Eight years. That's we incredible. Eight years, yeah. And, you know, and we had a great time and we had some incredible, incredible adventures together. And I do miss him. I miss him. You miss his sense of humor. And, and then when you were at, for the eight years, did 
Duncan Stewart come in uh, once you were the head or did he come in when yeah, you- Yeah, Duncan was like my very first resident casting assistant. He was the very my very first when I was became casting director. And it was it was hard because it was just the two of us casting the whole season. We cast Grey Gardens together. Wow. Yeah, and and he was new at it, and I was well. I wasn't new. I knew what I was doing, but it, I wasn't used to like just the two. It was just the two of us casting that show, you know. And we were also became very good friends and and allies and partners through that whole year, through that whole season. That was that was. That was something. <laughs> and I'm so proud of him. Yeah, it's so funny because he t- he actually texted me the other day and said, what are you doing? Who are you? So many of our, you know, the casting directors that we interact with are, you know, more freelance, but you're kind of, you're the head of, head of casting at Playwrights. Like how does, how is your like day to day maybe a little bit different? And, you know, what is that like kind of being? Yeah, well, because, you know, I'm also, I'm also on the, I'm on the artistic staff there. So I, you know, advise the artistic director, we, you know, we um, work on other projects. We're kind of always developing and devising new ways to tell stories, which is really cool. Um, right now, I'm working on our gala, trying to like get fancy people to come and. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of things. We do a lot of development work, so we do a lot of workshops. We do a lot of readings. It's it's a full time job, playwrights. And then I have my like side gigs. Nobody does special programs like one-on-one next level. It's where we really help actors shine. I'm Emilio. I signed with my Southeast agent right after the Atlanta trip, and now I'm auditioning several times every month. And you know, I almost didn't do the Atlanta trip because I thought it was just another cash grab. I can tell you from experience that it's not. That's not how one-on-one next level rolls. And here we are six months later, and I already booked my first job with my Atlanta agent. I'm Rebecca, and the Bridge program demystified the industry for me. It gave me the platform to get off book in under 10 minutes. I met 60 new artists that are now all a part of my community, and I even signed with a manager. I have never walked away from a program so confident in my abilities. I'm so grateful for one-on-one next level. My name is Capenna, and I can finally call myself a working actor after participating in the LA Super Showcase. I had just moved to LA and I felt stuck. I came across the LA Super Showcase and let me tell you, it was a life-changing experience. I signed with an agent and since then, I've been auditioning for series regulars and booked my first TV job. I finally feel like I made it to the next level, thanks to One-on-One Next Level. In the next 12 months, One-on-One Next Level will host 27 special programs bringing you unmatched, exclusive access to industry connections. Special programs aren't just a one-and-done class. Instead, they're designed to accomplish in a weekend what it takes most actors months, even years to do. So whether you want to get repped in a smaller market like Atlanta, bypass casting directors and connect directly with TV showrunners and decision makers, or spend a weekend meeting a bunch of musical theater industry professionals in New York City, you have to become a member to be eligible to sign up for our special programs. To apply, go to www.1on1nextlevel.com. We can't wait to hear your success story. Is that a misprint that you're part of a podcast, Marvel Media? I am. Yeah, I did um, the the Wastelander series, which is so cool. It's about, you know, it's all the Marvel superheroes. It's, you know, it's Wolverine and the Hulk and and Star-Lord. And it's like all of these Marvel heroes. It's Black Widow and in the series, they're all senior citizens, and they've all been sort of exiled, and, and the world has been taken over by this authoritarian figure called Doom. 
And so all of these superheroes who have now like, you know, retired to other different parts of the universe are now being called back to like save the world. But they're all senior citizens. And it's it's so much fun. It's Susan Sarandon and and Danny Glover, Chris Elliott and John Hawks and um, Dylan Baker and um, what a Field and 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 Vanessa Williams. It's so much fun. I had so much fun working on it. But you know, it's also so different because with theater, you're asking people to work for like not a lot of money, mm-hmm. and then suddenly I'm working on this podcast where it's doling it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm working on another podcast now, but I can't talk about it because I signed an NDA. But I'm working on another one right now. And I just got a big, big casting thingy today. And all of a sudden someone say, hey, I want you to do this podcast. It's, it's so interesting how it started because I worked with Kimberly Sr., Kimberly Sr., the, the theater director. And I've worked with her on a couple of projects. And so she got hired. And then she said, hey, you want to cast with me? And I was like, yeah. And, and then... Tim Busfield, who I've worked with when I did the TV show Ed and Nights of Prosperity, he was directing something and he got me involved. So it's just like people I knew who recommended me, who asked me to, to, to be involved. And I said, oh, this is really fun. This is really interesting. It's kind of like a whole new new avenue for me. And there's so many parallels to that and actors too. It's like, you know, it's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are... And these are scripted podcasts. These are scripted stories. They're like movies for your ears, is what I like to say. You know what's interesting that just came to me, Elaine? You know, first of all, there's nothing more powerful out of all, between television, film, and theater. There is nothing more powerful than when you're sitting in a theater and, you know, you actually just lost your whole entire being because you actually are with the story in front of you. You you know, you're... You're there. You forgot you're sitting in a theater. Isn't that like the best, where you just like forget where you are? But I will tell you something. Now, for me, when you were saying the podcast thing, I'm like, where's the connecting? And then I thought to myself, first of all, when I was a little boy, I, I, I knew just like you, I wanted to be part of this business, right? Yeah. The power of the sitting in a theater. You did community theater, I saw. Yes. There was nothing like it, you know, sitting in a theater. Like that. There was one thing for me that probably even went beyond that, and that is... When I was like a little kid, like fourth grade, I remember I would have to go to sleep at a certain time, but there was this thing on the radio called Mystery Theater. Yeah. Okay. And it, they showed like any night at 10 o'clock, this like, whatever it was, like, you know, they had they had a new hour long scripted, you know, like radio show with great actors, but it was all listening. You yes. know, you, and the power of the- yeah, yeah. Power of listening. So where were you like with your little transistor radio? Yeah, my transistor underneath the me pillow. Too, me too. Okay, I'm yeah. Going a couple times, and you're like, <laughs> "Well, she came in the room and hear it." And you know, in the fourth grade, you're like, "It's a yes. five at night time." I used to do the same thing. I used to just, like have to turn really low so my parents didn't hear me listening. So the acting when you're listening to something that comes through that little transistor radio is probably even more powerful than sitting in a theater seat, which is even more powerful than a television or a film performance, it's incredible. Well, I think, I think it depends. Like some people are more audio, audio, is that right? And some people are more visual and I feel like I'm both. Yeah, but I love, I love listening to, to scripted podcasts and I love audiobooks and, you know, I, I love all that stuff. Yeah, there's something very powerful about you're bringing your own imagination uh, to, you know, to what you're hearing. You're visualizing what's happening as you're listening to it. And that's some, there's something really powerful about that, that, because you're part of the storytelling. Yeah, you're like the scenic designer, you're the, you know, you're directing the actors, you're you're creating the actors. It's like it's so cool. 
but we're you know we're dating ourselves with the transistor radio thing. But I will say, until we learned about this project that the you know the Marvel podcast, I didn't even yeah. know these existed because yeah, you know, like, like I'm I'm such a visual person, so like it, audio stuff for me kind of just goes out the window. I, yeah, yeah, well, it depends. Yeah, it depends on who you know the person. I think yeah. Yeah, I think I was just good at tuning out like AP European history sitting there, and the teacher would be talking, and I'd be like, I just go out the other year. But now, yeah, but I, you know, I tell actors to listen to these scripted podcasts and also like some watch TV shows that turn the sound off. Uh-huh. You can learn so much. Yeah. You know, that that's interesting because, you know, like I, I still remember there are only so much I remember, not too much. <laughs> David Mamet in his book says, you know, the basic difference between, you know, the uh, theater and, uh, you know, like like a film is in, in film. You know, it, it's like you're telling the story through pictures and in theater, you're, you're telling the story through words. Yeah, it's all about text. It's all about text and theater. That's so true. This is our 30th anniversary podcast, and part of the theme is how they made it happen. So one thing that we ask every single guest on our podcast is, has there ever been a time where you felt like you're going through this like insurmountable challenge, and maybe you took a risk, and you took something that was that may seem like a gamble, and it really paid off, and kind of how you pushed through those tough times? Oh, yeah. I think when I, when I left working for... Uh, Goldstick, Weinberger, Rotenberg, Grossman Bar, um, and Bear Marks and Upham. When I stopped working for the, the law firm and decided to get back into the, you know, into the creative world, I mean, that was terrifying. You know, it's really scary. Suddenly you don't have a paycheck. I slept on cou- a lot of couches. I did a lot of couch surfing. Then got lucky, you know, got lucky. But it's the thing is, it's like I always knew, and, and it's so true. It's like when you trust those instincts, what's the saying when you, when you take a, a I think it was Gerda, who said, when you take a step towards your destiny, the universe will take a thousand. And I really, truly believe that. I mean, probably more than that I do now. Uh, but I trusted that. And I was, you know, it was scary sometimes, but it was good. And I think, I think now also, because of COVID, people are just not coming back to the theater. And that's scary. I think theaters are, right now are grappling with the idea of, okay, do we produce less? Or do we produce more, but differently? And how, what do you think is going to happen, let's just say, three to five years from today? How do you see theater? Okay, so here's what I think. I think, because there's a lot of people, including my my husband, who's always saying, theater's dead. You know, he's not in the theater, so he doesn't know. He just likes to say that because it... <laughs> but I, you know, when you go back to uh, the days of Cromwell, and Cromwell was like, okay, we're getting rid of theater. Okay. I mean, again, like I said, this is a tradition. Theater goes back many millennia. Um, and Cromwell came in and for like, I don't know how many years, he was like, theater was abolished. Okay. And what happened? People were like, oh, no, me, no. I mean, it took a while. But they were like, uh-uh. And then, you know, they got rid of Cromwell and they brought, you know, Charles the Second. Is that right? Yeah, back. And that was like, and you had the restoration. You had the theater, the restoration of theater. And it came back bigger and stronger than ever. So that is what I see in five years. I think we're going to figure it out. You know what? People people have a need to be together. They do. And like in, and there's something about people in the dark hearing stories from people in the light. There's something really, really powerful about that. And I, so I think, yeah, I think people are still scared to come back because, because, of, because there's still cooties out there. But I think people are going to come back. But I also think that we do need to, to change the way we tell stories. And I think we have to we have to um, adapt. 
we have to adapt to like our new audiences and 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 finding ways to get them to come back. But I I feel good about it. I think it's going to be okay. I think you know I think my favorite story. My my husband was reminding me of this is the West Bank restaurant, which which is across from Playwrights Horizons. They used to have this amazing veal chop. Okay, I mean I would get it and like it would eat it would be like five meals. <laughs> you know, the owner Steve Olson said to me one day, he goes, you know that veal chop like we don't make any money off of that veal chop. It's but it's popular, so we have it on the menu. So when COVID happened, he was like, well, I can't serve that veal chop anymore because it's too expensive. We can't afford it. So what he did is he shaved it into like thin layers and made veal schnitzel out of it. <laughs> and he was creative. He found a creative way. And now it's like one of the best dishes on the menu. It's like something, and I people who don't like veal, sorry. He has found a creative way to get people to keep coming back and ordering something that is now like evolved <laughs> into a completely new dish and it's fantastic it's delicious it's better i prefer it to the original and i think that's what's going to happen with theater i think we're going to have to evolve and i think we're going to have to be very creative but you know people love stories yes they do people love stories a theater's not going away it's not going away yeah. and i'm also trying to find creative ways to come get people to come in you know i always, always say this to my um to my bosses one of the greatest untapped audiences we have are are acting students and actors, actors who are, are learning because this is, again, this is their church. This is where you come to learn. This is where you come to, you know, find out like what the new, what, who the new writers are or what the new stories are or get ideas for, for classes and working and, you know, things to work on. So I'm like really want to create something to get and, and, after, and they can't afford it because it's so freaking expensive, you know, to go to the theater. So I, that's what I want to do. I'm working on trying to create something for actors, you know, af that's affordable so they can come and see our shows. After COVID, it was like $220 for like one ticket or something. I, it, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, that's, you know, more commercial theater, but, uh, but that's what I'm trying to, you know, get, get these actors to, co to come to off-Broadway and, and off-off-Broadway and, and find ways for these, our theaters, these theaters to make it affordable. And easy for them to get tickets. So, but that's something I'm thinking about. So, you guys have any ideas? I'm I'm open. Well, we're always a we're always a mind melt. Like I feel like the three of us. I think that's great that you're doing that. Yeah, that's really. Yeah, yeah. I think it is. It's like that audience that will never go away. And that's another thing. My husband says, "Oh, they're all on TikTok. They don't want to come to the theater." I was like, "No, that you know, I would love to attract the TikTok audiences, but you know, this is dating myself. But you know, do you remember like?" When Angels in America first came to Broadway, uh -huh. it was done in such a way with using different mediums where people were like, oh, wow, this is a different kind of a theater experience. Yes. Yeah. So I always thought after seeing that show, oh, theater's drastically going to change. It actually didn't. But I do feel like a rebirth of theater by using probably different mediums is going to be the way of the future. Yeah, I, 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 I do think that. I think that. And actually, you know, we just closed Downstate at Playwrights Horizons. And I was particularly proud of that show because I don't know if you if you know what the premise is, but it's about a halfway house uh, of of pedophiles, of people who've been charged with sexual pedophilia misconduct. And the show is so much about restorative justice. Now, when Bruce wrote it, he was like, okay, what's, and he's a very provocative writer, but he was like, okay, what's the one group of people that everybody hates and we can all agree on? You say that because I'm now I'm really curious because when I saw, did you see the film with Kevin Bacon where he played a pedophile? Oh, yeah, I did. Yes, I did. 
he actually played a pedophile that you had compassion for. Right, from compassion for, exactly. And in this show, you do. And, and a lot of theaters didn't want to produce this show because they were they knew it would be... Because yeah, everybody hates pedophiles, right? Ted Cruz and like said some mean things about us, but oh, it's okay. We invited him to come to see the show and you said no. Yeah, but I think what happened is we trusted our audience to understand what it was about and, and they embraced it. They embraced it. And wow. understanding that, you know, we're all human. And That's right. Uh, we're all human and these are broken humans. And maybe what the way we treat them is not the way we should be treating them. I don't know. Or maybe there's a better way. There's a way for healing. I mean, there was so, so much about the tragedy of the of that, you know, of people who fall into that. And how can we help them? And how do we protect our kids? And how do we also help these broken people who were kids at one point and were, you know, the chances that they were victims of abuse? You know, when you say theater's a church, I really do feel like we are all, you know, we're all the same, even though we're different, right? And there are paths I know I could have taken in my childhood where I went down a wrong path, but you, you know what I mean? Fortunately, yeah. I was with some good people and but I, I always relate to every, try to relate to everything. And I think that's what theater does. It it makes us see things that's maybe not our world, but gets us, if it's good theater, makes us go like, oh. And I think that's why theater will never die. And it's healing. And you know, when, when my husband saw the show, and he's, again, he's not a theater person. He didn't speak for 12 hours. I mean, he was really, really shaken by it. And, and, he, and he said to me, the only thing he said to me was like, is that what you call entertainment? <laughs> but then he, afterwards, he couldn't stop thinking about it. And he could say, he was like, it really made me think in a different way than I've ever thought. And I think that's what theater is supposed to do. It's not supposed to give us the answers. It's supposed to ask the questions. And then we can, we can explore within our, our own lives and our own beliefs and, and decide what those answers are. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't done it yet, grab the Backstage Pass. Don't treat this podcast as mere background entertainment. The Backstage Pass offers exclusive resources and behind-the-scenes footage that empower you to make a real impact on your career. Music.